Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast, where you can learn how to improve your diet, lose fat, and get fitter in a sustainable and fun way without spending hours in the gym. Here is your host, Darren Kirby. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. This is the number one podcast for men in their 40s who want to improve their health through nutrition and fitness. This is episode 121, and on today's episode, we are going to be speaking about binge eating with psychologist Glenn Livingston. Glenn is a veteran psychologist and is disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight or food-obsessed individuals. Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via his work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Before we get into today's episode though guys, I just want to take a moment to mention the show's sponsors, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens was created by its co-founder Chris after years of gut health issues that left him facing a health crisis with no solutions in sight. Despite his best efforts to maintain a balanced nourishing diet, Chris's body struggled to absorb and synthesize nutrients. Chris developed Athletic Greens with a mission of creating the highest efficacy, bioavailable and nutritionally complete supplement to help your body function as it's supposed to, no matter what your age is. Now, as many of you know who are regular listeners to the podcast, I am a huge advocate of getting all your nutrients and vitamins from real nutrient-dense food. But with our busy schedules and lifestyles, it's not always possible. So I personally take... uh, athletic greens every day uh, with is as kind of an insurance policy really to make sure that I'm getting all of the vitamins and minerals in my daily diet so for listeners of the podcast athletic greens have a 10% offer your first order so if you head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash fit to healthier dad you will get 10% off your first order hey Glenn thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today how are you I'm very good. I've been looking forward to talking to you, Darren. Absolutely. Likewise, because I think um, what we're going to talk about today is a very, very interesting topic um, for a number of different reasons, Glenn. Um, But before we get into that, it will be fantastic for me and the audience to hear a little bit about your background, how you've come to where you're at today. And yeah, yeah, more about Glenn. Okay. There are a couple of important things you should know. Um, one is that I'm not just a doctor who decided to work with overeaters. Right. I, I'm a guy who had a serious problem myself. Okay. Um, I, I was about 280 pounds. I'm about 210 today. Right. Um, I, I float between about 200 and 210. But when I, when I was a boy, I discovered that because I'm 6'4 and I'm modestly muscular, that if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Right. And I'm, I'm talking like, you know, pizza and a half and (laughs) six donuts and you know lattes and chocolate bars and if it wasn't nailed down where you stopped by the Woodbury Country Deli and they were out of chocolate and pizza you know why (laughs) Um, it was was that kind of thing and I I thought it was great honestly I did not think it was a problem I thought it was like a superpower yeah Uh, Doug Graham gave me that line and and, um, it was fine until I was about 23 
Right. But at that time, I was married and I was in graduate school and I was commuting two hours each way to see patients and go to classes. Mm -hmm. And I was helping my wife at the time to run a business. And I didn't have time to work out more than maybe, you know, 30 minutes twice a week. But I found that the food had a life of its own. It's like it had a hold of me. And I would be sitting and working with patients and I would be thinking, you know, when, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the tray in it, you know, and it actually, I mean, I started gaining a little weight, but it, it bothered me much more from an efficacy standpoint because I was working with some suicidal people and I was working with couples after they discovered an affair. Yeah. And I come from a family of psychologists. Everybody in my family is a psychologist and I, I really wanted to do that first and foremost. It was my identity. So that bothered me more than the weight and the triglycerides and all the things the doctors were yelling me at me about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I couldn't really fix it. I, I assumed that, you know, being a psychologist, you think everything has a psychological origin. So I, I assumed that I had a hole in my heart. And if I could find that hole in my heart and fix it, then I wouldn't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach. Right. So I was try, trying to love myself then. Mm. Um, Every important thing you need to know about me is that I, I was married to a woman who traveled for business. So we never had kids and I never commuted. I always worked at home. Right. So I had a lot of time on my hands once I was out of graduate school mm. to um, have a second career. Okay. And that, that evolved to being an advertising research consultant, um, mostly for big food and big pharma. It's like I was okay. on the wrong, wrong side of the war. Mm. Um, and what I saw there was that... Um, they're, they're paying millions, if not billions of dollars to these rocket scientists mm-hmm. to engineer these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar, fat and salt and excitotoxins. And it's all designed to hit the bliss point of your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied, right? right. So they, they're stealing your survival drive is what they're doing. And every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache is laughing all the way to the back. Right. Um, so that was my first clue that maybe my problem wasn't that my mama didn't love me enough or I didn't have right. the love of my life or something. And that maybe there was some external force going on. Um, so I, I went through... I went to see all the best psychologists. I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a while. I went to psychiatrists that took medication, everything you could imagine. And it was a very soulful and spiritual journey. Mm. And it's a part of who I am. I don't regret it, but it didn't help me to stop the overeating and binge eating. It just didn't. Right. Um, I I get a little thinner and then a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. Yeah. And um, ultimately, there were a couple of things that caused me to flip the paradigm from okay. love yourself been to more of a alpha wolf, tough dog, um, let's take control of this thing approach. And, and one of them was that I took an interest in the neurology of addiction. Right. And, it, and as near as I could tell, addiction arises from the reptilian brain, the very, the very primitive part of us that says, you know, when it looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? It's, mm-hmm. it's very, very primitive. They're the seed of the feast and famine response. But the, most importantly, there's no love there. Yeah. Love is more of a function of the mammalian brain and the neocortex, which says, you know, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, 
Um, what impact is this going to have on the people that you love? What impact is this going to have on your long-term plans, including health and fitness? Mm. What impact is this going to have on the person that you want to be? Mm. And I said, well, that's interesting. And then there were parallels to other biological drives where they were pointing out that we, uh, in particular, Jack Trimpey from a, wrote a book called Rational Recovery. He, he said that, um, look, we take control of our other biological drive. Darren, if I had to pee really badly right now, mm-hmm. I, I would tell my bladder, I'm sorry, I hear you, I'll take care of you later, but I'm in control, man. And right. I'm, ta- I'm talking to Darren, we have to get through this first. Yeah. And then I'll, right? And I do that as a matter of fact. I, I live with the fact that I'm an animal, like mm-hmm. we're all we're evolved animals, but we're also civilized human beings and we take control. Same yeah. thing with our reproductive organs. If there's a you know, pretty girl walking on the street downstairs, I don't say, excuse me, and go around downstairs and, you know, kiss a stranger on the lips. Yeah. There are ways, I'm actually a little bit shy, so I wouldn't do that anymore, but there there are ways to to approach a woman. Yeah. Um, And so it's not unparalleled that that you could have a biological drive and take the alpha dog position. Mm. And when when the alpha dog is challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. Right. Yeah. It, it growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Right. Yeah. It, it just takes control. Um, the the final thing that really drove this home was I, I was getting paid a lot of money to do these studies. So I knew how to set them up. And the days when the Internet clicks were cheap, this was like 1999 or so. I intercepted people, 40,000 people over the course of several years while they were searching for solutions to stress. And I I asked them what they felt stressed about. And I asked them if they had any trouble stopping eating beyond their own best judgment with certain foods, what foods were there? And I saw that there were, uh, and I'll I'll wrap this up in a minute. You can ask. No, 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 that's fine. Okay. And I, I saw that there were three primary patterns. People who overate chocolate, and all my binges always started with chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate, then pizza, then lattes. That was my thing. Um, people who overeat chocolate tended to be lonely, brokenhearted, or depressed. Right. Um, people who overeat salty, crunchy things tended to be stressed at work. And people who overeat soft, chewy, starchy things like pizza and bagels and things like that, they tended to be stressed at home. Right. And I thought that was really interesting. So I called my mom, who was also a therapist and also has a chocolate problem. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, mom, I just did this study and, you know, I wasn't super happy in the marriage. And um, I said, well, it kind of makes sense. I'm a little lonely and brokenhearted, but really how did this pattern get set up? Why do I run to chocolate if I feel lonely or brokenhearted? And she gets this horrible look on her face and she goes, Clint, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, you know, it's okay. It's 40 years ago. This was, yeah. Yeah, years ago now. Uh, I'm 57. But at the time, it was 40 years ago. And I said, Mom, I forgive you. I love you. I just want to know. And she says, Well, I'm so sorry. But when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. Uh, I, you know, we were working on having another one on the way, working on making your sister. And um, I thought I'm going to be an army widow with, with two small children. Right. And at the same time, my father, your grandfather, Glenn, had just gotten out of prison. And I didn't know that he was guilty. I didn't know he was doing these things that I'd always idolized him. And he was my only salvation in life. And I was horribly depressed. 
So my mom was horribly depressed and anxious when I was a boy. And so as a consequence, what she did is she'd be sitting and staring at the wall when I came running to her and asking for a hug or some love or, you know, or even some healthy food. She didn't have the wherewithal to make that for me. Right. So she kept a, a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a little refrigerator on the floor. And she said, right. honey, go get your Bosco. And, and I go running over to the, or crawling over to the, the refrigerator and I take it out and I suck on the bottle right. and I go into a chocolate sugar coma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so there you go. That's where it started. Yeah. And we, we kind of had this movie moment where, you know, we both cried a little bit and this is over Skype, but we would have had a big right. movie. And if it were really the movies, you would think, that I would never have trouble with chocolate again because right. that's that's the root of it. We figured out the root. Yeah. Now we have this catharsis and everything is fine, right? Yeah. Um, what actually happened is I started overeating more. Oh, wow. Because there was this voice. Well, let me back up for a second. It led to all sorts of good conversations. I forgave my mom. I learned all yeah. kinds of things about her. I learned things about myself. I kind of forgave myself. So that that voice of self-castigation and hatred, it softened after that. So they did help a little bit. But there was also this voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. Yeah. And until we can, you know, get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to go right out eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get more right now. Right. So there was this voice of justification. Mm. And then I put all these three, three things together. There's the, you know, there's a big food industry engineering these hyperpalatable substances, mm-hmm. uh, which by the way, down-regulate your pleasure center so that you don't experience the pleasures of natural foods as much as you should. If right. you, have a, you have a bag of chips every day, then the natural starches in a potato don't taste the same to you. Right. In a whole, in a whole. Um, if you have a chocolate bar every day, the natural sugar is in fruit or lettuce even don't don't taste delicious to you. Yeah. It can get to the point that people feel like they can get no pleasure from food without these, you know, concentrated forms of pleasure. Yeah. So um, I just kind of put it all together and I said, you know, there's that. There's the advertising industry, which yeah. we, didn't, we didn't, didn't even touch on that, but they are fantastic at making you believe that they have the good stuff. Um, one of my best friends became the VP of a major food bar manufacturer that show were named nameless. Yeah. Um, and he told me that their most profitable insight was when they took the vitamins out of the bar because they were making them wow. taste bad and they were expensive. <laughs> and, and they put the money into the packaging instead. Okay. They made it multicolored and vibrant. And, and in nature, a multicolored, you know, a diversity of colors yeah. and, and vibrancy would signal a diversity of micronutrients that are available. You know, <laughs> that's why they tell you to eat. So they're faking us out, right? Yeah. It goes on across the industry, not just in the food. So I said, there are all these outside forces that are, that are um, rerouting my survival drive from where it belongs, which is what nature has to offer mostly. Um, and some people think that's fruit and vegetables. Some people think it's fruit and vegetables and lean meat. But whatever it is, it's not bags and boxes and containers. And we, we didn't have you know, chips and pizza and all these things yeah. on, the, on the savannah. Um, and, and, and so I said, okay, m- maybe I'm looking at the wrong emotional model. I was thinking about the model that an emotional upset causes binge eating, right? Mm. Causes causes overeating because we're overeating for comfort. Yeah. But I had this really weird insight. I said, if I went to the dentist 
and he was out of Novocaine. He wouldn't say, hey, I'm out of Novocaine. Do you mind if I inject you with chocolate instead because you need some comforting? You, you need to yeah. numb out. Numb. Yeah. And I said, well, you're not really numbing out with this stuff. You're getting high with it. This, this yeah. concentration, you're actually getting high with food. So that was one thing. The other thing was that there was a series of animal studies that showed, you know, you can't ask animals how they're feeling. No. But the, the correlates of um, emotion, there are physiological correlates that you can measure. So, for example, if you're anxious, your heart beats a little faster, your galvanic skin response goes up. Yeah. You, you start perspiring and, and um, your blood pressure goes up a little bit. So they could measure those things. And they found that if they gave animals food rewards when those elements of anxiety were raised, that the animals learned to keep those physiological elements constantly raised. Yeah. And, and so what that said to me was that people think they feel anxious and therefore you, they have to eat. But what if the food is actually creating the anxiety? What if by the principle yeah. of operant conditioning? Yeah. So it's, okay. So it's, it's a complicated, so it's a two-way relationship. Secondly, I realized that if you were to make a rule for yourself, like I will never have chocolate, chocolate on a weekday again, for example, yeah. that's how I started. And you decide to break that rule because there was a, you know, chocolate bar at, at the line on Starbucks and, you know, it's got your name on it. And, and <coughs> bless you. And you hear this voice in your head that says, you worked out hard enough, even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain any weight. A little chocolate won't hurt. You could just start again tomorrow and decides chocolate grows on a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. Um, I realized there's this voice of justification, right. just like that, just like that voice of justification. And I said, well, maybe it's not the whole story. But maybe what the voice of justification is doing is greasing the chute. So mm. these external forces are pulling you from where your survival drive needs to be, which is mm -hmm. you know, for natural nutritious things. Um, and then there's this voice of justification that greases the chute. Yeah. And then I said, well, suppose you think of emotion as a fire, like a, a roaring fire, and it keeps burning down the house because you're overeating, right? Well, a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace in the living room is an asset, not a liability. Right? Yeah. People gather around it. They make memories. They cry. They laugh. They tell stories. They hug. Um, it's an asset. That's, that's the gist of our, of our life. It becomes the center of hearth and home. Hmm. It's only if there are holes in the fireplace. And then I kind of said, well, maybe this voice of justification is poking holes in the fireplace. And what if I set up a system whereby... I could identify that voice of justification and then aggressively disempower it. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is a little embarrassing. I, I, I didn't work with overeaters back then because I had a um, eating disorder myself. Yeah. And I, ne I never expected I was going to be public talking about this. And I, I'm actually a sophisticated psychologist. I've been all over the media and, um, yeah. and I've published in all these things. I've got a, anyway, I have to say that before I tell you what, I'm, what I did because it's a yeah. embarrassing. <laughs> um, what I did was, I drew very clear lines in the sand. Okay. I, I said, first thing I said was, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have okay. it on the weekend. Because I figured I had to know when that reptilian brain was active. I, right. I didn't know what I was aiming at. I wouldn't know whether it was me or the reptilian brain talking. Yeah. And then I decided that anything that suggested I would have chocolate during the week wasn't me. It was my reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. But the embarrassing part is I called my reptilian brain my inner pig. Okay. It's just, just going to be something I did in a diary for yeah. myself. Yeah. And so if I was at that Starbucks and the, you know, the pig was saying, um, 
no, it's okay. Just start again tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute. That's not my, that's not me. Yes. Chocolate, chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't know if the fireman will tell me what to do. Right. And this was going all on in my head. It's yeah. not out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it sounds ridiculous, but after, after decades of in-depth psychological searching and reading all the books I could and doing all this research in the, um, you know, in the industry, what worked for me, it, it wasn't a miracle, yeah. but it, it would wake me up at the moment of temptation and give me yeah. an opportunity to make the right choice. Let's, just a few extra microseconds. Sometimes I'd make the right choice. Sometimes I wouldn't. Mm. I found that when I more carefully examined the logic behind what the pig was saying, and I could find the lie in what it was saying. For example, it's not just as easy to start tomorrow. The yeah. way the brain works, the principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. Yeah. So you have a craving for chocolate. You have it on a Wednesday. You have just made it more likely that you're going to do one on a Thursday also. Yeah. Um, if you're in a hole, you have to stop digging, right? Yeah. And, and there are the 13 other reasons I can give you why it's not easier to start tomorrow. I'll give you one more, which is that if you have the thought, I'll just start tomorrow, and then you eat chocolate, you've rewarded the thought. So yes. that, makes, that makes you more likely to think I'll start tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, and I could go on and on, but, but um, so Darren, that's what happened. I, I, started, <laughs> <laughs> I started playing with different rules. Um, there were things I would always do, like have, you know, start my day with spring water. Mm -hmm. um, there are things I would never do, like, you know, it, it turned out I really couldn't have caffeine. There okay. are things that things I would do conditionally, like like the chocolate, or like um, would only have pretzels mm -hmm. at a major major league baseball game. Yeah, and um, slowly but surely, I realized I had this power to, um, to to wake up and follow these rules. Yeah, and and you know, it took a while before it was hundred percent, and I had to keep adjusting the rules to make it reasonable and something I would aim for. But the miracle was that I no longer felt powerless and confused. I no right. longer felt like there's, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I kept a diary for eight years of all okay. the different cr crazy things my pig said. And yeah. um, I eventually turned it into a book and wow. I published it after I got divorced. And okay. I mean, I have a background in marketing and I had a partner who, you know, was running the publishing company and he has a background in marketing. So we, yeah. we knew what we were doing, what none of us expected to take off the way that it does. And, wow. Okay. Um, now we have yeah. over a million readers and nine coaches working for us. And um, yeah. sometimes I'll be in a bookstore on a first date and someone will come over to me and say, they don't recognize my, yeah. my, my name and they go, pig guy. Pig guy. <laughs> Which is not really what you want to happen on a first date. Well, that's how, that's how I got here. That's what I. That's how I got here. I mean that that is super interesting and fascinating, Glenn. And to be honest with you, there's so many different directions that I can take this. But but I guess you know particularly around big food because the, the story you told me there around it is a story that I've heard in a different said in a different way previously around psychology and scientists around food. But where I where I want to kind of take it back to for the listeners is. I have this theory after working with lots of men um, who have struggled with their weight. And the theory that I have is around our childhood. And obviously you've told me your story around childhood, which kind of confirms what my thoughts are. And my thoughts are that our relationship with food in our adult life is partly 
um, you know, made up from what happens in our childhood. Right. So I'll give you an example from my own specific experience. When I was a child, my parents would restrict me from eating crisps. Yet, lo and behold, when I was old enough to go and buy them myself and I was in my adulthood, I think nothing of eating huge, great big bags and six packs of crisps and all the rest of it. So that's where I, I, I come from when I say about about your childhood. So obviously you said that from your experience. Is that is that a pattern that you see when we when you're starting to look at people that are overeating and binge eating? It's, it's part of that is from their childhood. It, it certainly is. It certainly is. In fact, virtually everybody's particular food choices and patterns can be traced back to um, some childhood experience. And um, the, the thing that threw me for a long time, though, is that I didn't realize the natural conclusion we would draw from that is wrong. Mm. The natural conclusion of the fact that there's this high correlation between how we were brought up and the particular foods that we struggle with mm -hmm. would be that if you could resolve those underlying memories and issues that the, the food struggle would go away. Right. But, right. but there's such a physiological component to the food struggle and it takes a long time to resolve those childhood issues. Yeah. So, so you put that together and in the meantime, you're reinforcing the addiction and reinforcing the addiction waiting to solve your childhood traumas. Mm. Um, I, I learned that it's better to have a very practical set of techniques to sever the link between um, uh, trauma, overstimulated emotions and overeating. So yeah. if you sever the link and you fix that fireplace, mm. then you can examine the fire more carefully and you're going to get further in therapy and further in the relationship between your you know, your childhood and what you're doing. And it does help. Like when, when you, my over, my, I did start overeating chocolate more, but it wasn't quite as intense. And I, right. I didn't hate myself as much. And it's actually, um, it's difficult to keep binging if you're not continually yelling at yourself while you do. Yeah. Because the, that self-castigation is actually a function of the reptilian brain in and of itself. Right. See what, the appropriate role of guilt or shame in overeating, it does have a role, but it's minimal. Mm. It's kind of like the role of physical pain when you touch a hot stove. Right. If, if you accidentally touch a hot stove, you're not supposed to say, oh, my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. Let me just put my whole hand down on the stove, right? Mm. But th that's what happens to people when they overeat. They get, oh, my God, I'm never going to be thin. I'm never going to figure this out. I might as well just keep going and going and going. Mm. The role of physical pain is to draw attention to the fact that there was a danger and that something needs to be adjusted. Yeah. But then once you make the adjustment and you know why, the hot why you hit the hot stove, why you miss it and how you're going to avoid that in the future, it does you no good whatsoever to keep feeling that physical pain. Mm. Same with guilt or shame. A little bit, ju just enough to wake you up and say, okay, I made a mistake. Um, how am I going to adjust my aim why did I make the mistake? You know, I aimed at the bullseye. I missed it, but by how much, in what direction, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What adjustments do we need to make? And then let it go. Mm. Let it go. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the short answer to your question is very much so uh, we could have fascinating talks and yeah. you, know, you and I could bond a lot if we talked about our childhood and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and how we ate. 
Um, yeah. But it wouldn't necessarily help you with the overeating until you, um, no. until you really sever the link between the emotion and the, and the behavior. Yeah. And, and when I say that, I think what, what I mean actually is that that's one element of it. I don't think for one minute that it's the only uh, way that we can kind of identify why we right. do what we do. Right. Because, right. you know, you, you hear and you see of people that they perhaps know that they're doing it. They chastise themselves for doing it, but they continue to do it. And I guess one of the other angles of that is, is because what happens in the brain, what chemicals get released when they eat these foods, right? There's some, you know, some serotonin, some dopamine that all gets kicked off. And so that overrides the internal self-talk that they have to stop eating, you know? What, what, what you need to know is that there are really two different nervous systems. Okay. There's the primitive nervous system. Uh, we call it the, the sympathetic nervous system yep. that prepares you for emergencies. Um, fight or flight, feast or famine, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, sometimes freeze, re reproductive opportunities. It, it's, um, and that system doesn't really know logic. Right. That system sees an opportunity in the, in the moment and it says we better take advantage of that or, or protect ourselves. And the part of us that is human, that has goals, Mm -hmm. that has an identity that, you know, loves and lives and wants to leave a legacy. That, that part is really more a manifestation of things that have developed later. And um, I mean, I, I believe in evolution, not everybody does. And it doesn't yeah. really matter how it got there. Maybe God gave us two brains. But you need to learn that the, the reptilian brain will override your logic unless you know how to get out of it. And so I actually evolved what I did over time mm -hmm. to, to recognize that I had to switch nervous systems first to really think straight. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we do now and we teach our clients is to take what Laurie Hammond calls a, a 7-Eleven breath. Right. What that, what that means is you breathe in for a count of seven and you breathe out for a count of 11. I'm not going to do it right now, but it's very yeah. calming. Yeah. The reason that works is that if you were being chased by a tiger, if there was a legitimate emergency, you wouldn't have time to take a 7-Eleven breath. You wouldn't have right. time to breathe out for longer than you breathe in. Then we have people carry around a pad and paper or a smartphone to write with. Right. And after they've taken that 7-Eleven breath or three or four of them, they ask their pig, and you don't have to call it a pig. I called it a pig. I wasn't going to be public about <laughs> yeah. it. You can call it your food monster. or yeah. It's not a cute pet. This is not your inner wounded child. No. But, but it's something you need to take control over. Um, you could ask your pig, why do you want me to break my rules and eat this? Yeah. Because you, you, you recognize that you know, there's some voice in your head or image in your head mm. or feeling in your yeah. head that's, that says, go break the rules. You say, okay, why? After you've relaxed and gotten into your right brain, you say, why? And then you write it down in full. Right. See, writing is more of an upper brain activity. If you were being chased by a tiger, you wouldn't have yeah. time to write. Um, and once you've written it down, you've kind of exposed the pig soft underbelly. Yeah. It's, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. Um, you might as well break the rules and binge now. Well, it's just, it's just showed me its logic and it's given me an opportunity to disprove it in the way that we talked about before, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and then 
the last thing we do is we, we take another couple of 7-Eleven breaths. And once we've identified the um, false logic, we should be feeling a lot calmer and less urgent. We ask ourselves, why would staying with the rules make me a happier, better person? And, you know, for me, stay not, you know, not having chocolate on a Wednesday makes me feel like I can be a, you know, a tall, thin man and be in a loving relationship and climb mountains and walk around feeling more present and smiley and yeah. all kinds of all kinds of character traits that I'm trying to cultivate. Yeah. Um, and it all kind of comes together and keeps you motivated. And then you might have to actually eat. There might be an authentic bodily need underneath the craving. Right. Um, I couldn't, I eventually got off chocolate altogether because it was just maddening with all the crazy rules I had. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't do that until I started having these kale banana smoothies. Okay. And when I had the kale banana smoothies, there must've been some nutrient in there that nature had to offer that I was missing. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I forgot where we started on that long journey, but I, I'm ready for you to talk again. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's absolutely fine. I think, um, yeah, it, it, it was around, you know, the, the kind of self-talk and stuff like that we have in our heads. And as you were talking there around um, the self-talk, which I think is an, I, I believe is an important point to kind of emphasize because you know, we all have this internal self-talk, don't we? And a lot of people that I deal with, when you talk to them about their diet and you talk to them about overeating, you know, they say, oh, I know that I do it, but I don't understand why I do it. And I think a lot of the time is because they have this um, unconscious, they're not conscious about what they're doing. They're not kind of, they have no pattern interrupt to kind of interrupt themselves at the point where they, they're kind of going off track to say and have this internal dialogue right as you just described you know should why am i breaking the rules why should i keep to the rules and i think if you have that conscious awareness and you put this in place you are more likely and it's not going to be easy right and we'll come on to this um it's not going to be easy to when you first start to overcome this but over a period of time like everything when we try to make habitual change and change it will start to become more i guess not less unconscious but it become more effortless in order to to kind of implement so yeah so on that and going into that in a little bit more detail because some people listening to this might be thinking well that's crazy you know why am i going to have a conversation with myself why am i going to have this 7-eleven breath with myself all to stop me eating chocolate well it really depends on how much of an issue this is for you and how much you know your kind of eating habits or your diet is 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 causing an impact on your life so when you first start with people and you and you raise this topic of this internal dialogue and self-talk and writing stuff down how do people receive that and what is their normal kind of reaction and approach to it well there's a variety of different reactions but but um what you have to recognize is first of all we don't tell people what to eat right and some people are abstainers some people are moderators we only ask people to consider making rules around their difficult triggers of food behaviors Mm. and um you know there are rules and there are guidelines and everybody designs their own food plan so we're not asking you to give up anything in particular right but then we do ask you have you ever considered what you might be giving up by continuing to do what you're doing? 
Right. And right now you don't have a space between stimulus and response. Mm -hmm. It's like you're not there. The chocolate yeah. is on the counter and you eat it. And it's like your reptilian brain has taken over your life. It's actually minimizing your freedom. Mm. You're not making conscious choices. Um, you know, freedom is actually built on discipline. If, if you. That is you, true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like you, you could not drive a car if it weren't for the discipline of the engineers who make sure that when you turn the wheel 30 degrees to the right, it goes 30 degrees to the right. Yeah. Um, every time you add a discipline, every time you add a discipline to your life, you're going to feel freer. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, that's why Jim Rohn says a life of discipline is better than a, than a life of regret. Yeah. Um, so first of all, we ask people to consider what are you depriving yourself of by continuing to do what you're doing? Mm -hmm. uh, we know from our reader surveys that a typical binge eater, not, a, not just a classical overeater, but a binge eater will binge eat four times a week and it usually takes 24 hours to recover. Right. So, so they're losing half of their presence and productivity to, to doing this. And the idea of, we ask people to start with one simple rule and you don't have to give anything up with that simple rule. Some people say, um, I'll always put my fork down between bites. Right. Other people say, I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Mm. I knew a truck driver who had 150 pounds to lose. And he started by saying, look, I'm on the road all week long. I'm not going to stop eating at fast food joints. But I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. Right. And with that one simple rule, he starts to lose a little weight. See, what, what one simple rule will do for you is it'll prove to you that there's a whole other experience of life that's possible. Right. That you're in control of your life. You are your pig's master, not its slave. Yeah. Um, sometimes when private, we say you are, you are not the pig's B-I-A-T-C-H. Yeah. Um, the pig is your yeah. B. And, and people get that. Right. And when they realize they don't have to give up anything really to, to do it, but they get so much freedom from it. Um, they, they start to get addicted to the sense of power and mm you know, enthusiasm and hope um, as compared to where they were before, where they just felt like nothing was ever going to work. Yeah. So that, that's how we overcome that. Um, our pigs are used to setting the bar way too high for us. Yeah. So most overeaters are also good dieters, right? Right. And when they're dieting, they're really, 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 really good, right? And they maybe, maybe they lose three pounds a week or something like that. And they don't recognize that they're keeping themselves addicted to a feast and famine cycle. Yeah. And, and it's like, like their nursery rhyme, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. Yeah. When you over diet, when you lose mm -hmm. weight too quickly, yep. you are signaling your brain that you're living in an environment of scarce nutrition and calories. Right. When you do that, um, as soon as, food is available, it only makes sense that your brain would say, we better hoard that. Mm -hmm. this, this is the only reason that I can think of why it makes sense that for a lot of overeaters, being too full is a signal to eat more. It would seem yeah. like it should be a signal to stop. So um, we tell people one simple rule, flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit if you need to lose weight. Yeah. And slowly but surely, we'll add more rules and you'll gain the you know, health and fitness that you're looking to achieve. Yeah. And I think the you know, that the, the one rule scenario it comes back to me to basic fundamentals. And, and, and you'll know this as a, a psychologist is that as humans, 
as long as we can make one simple change at a time, it's much more sustainable and management manageable um, rather than what we tend to do. And particularly men, when they decide they want to make a change, it's an all or nothing scenario, isn't it? It's yep. a flicker switch. We've gone from 10 years of eating poorly or eat, overeating to flicking it to going straight onto the keto diet the next day and expecting it all to change in two weeks, right? And um, I just think that there's so much power in that for just making that one simple change. So when you start to, to work with people, Glenn, in, in terms of what would you say are the biggest catalysts that you see that people come and see you and say, right, I'm in trouble here. I, I realize I'm overeating. I'm binging. I'm eating poorly. I can't make the change on my own. You know, I need help. What, what's been the catalyst for them coming to you in the first place? Um, you know, we live in a world where diabetes is rampant and yeah. cardiovascular disease is 80% higher than it used to be. And um, diet reversible forms of cancer are rampant. And, and a lot of people wait until they can't get away with it anymore. Right. You know, they, they've been to the doctor and they're told that they're pre-diabetic or diabetic and he wants to put on a medication or, you know, their kidneys are failing or, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's because they see a loved one. They have a parent um, going through something and it's just horrible. And they yeah. say, wow, this is, um, this is the writing on the wall and I have to yeah. do that. Um, there are other people that become very performance motivated. Like, like we, we get men who have been, um, been uh, they, they finally discovered working out and they, yep. um, you know, they're at CrossFit and they want to do a few more box jumps and things like that. And they right. actually is stopping them. And um, those that, that's rarer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I prefer to work with those people because you yeah. catch them before them. But the vast majority of people, they've seen the ghost of Christmas future and they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so much so that one of the things we do with people is guide them to have a vision of the ghost of Christmas future. What's going okay. to happen if, if you keep doing what you're doing for, yeah. you know, not just the next six months, but what if you keep doing what you're doing for the next six years? Yeah. Where are you going to be? And not, not just with your fitness, but what impact is that going to have in your whole life? Mm-hmm. You know, your relationships and what about your career? Most people, as they deteriorate physically, they have less energy to be productive. They start to socially isolate and, you know, it really, it really shrinks their lives and affects the whole quality of life. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes I'm a meanie and I make people look at the ghost of Christmas future, but it, yeah. it helps. Yeah. 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 It, equally helpful though, is to look at what will happen if you comply. Like it, when people choose one simple rule yeah. and it hadn't really occurred to them what a big difference this could make. And then I say to them, okay, well take a breath and tell me if you were to follow this one simple rule for a year, I know your pig says you can't. Yeah, I know the pig says there are a million reasons yeah. you can't, but what if you did? What impact would that have on your weight? What impact would it have on your energy level? What about your relationship? What about your finances? And I'll have them paint the whole picture of what just complying with this one simple thing would do. And then they recognize that it's going to build some momentum and that it's um, really everything that they want in life is through this path. Mm. And, the, yeah. and the only thing that's really standing between them, not the only thing, but a very big part of what's standing between them and the kind of person they want to be is their ability to make that space between stimulus response and make better choices. 
yeah yeah and 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 i think the other side to it though is i would imagine this is going to be a big challenge in so much as when they start to make this change the reason that they've got to where they're at currently is the type of food they've been eating and what i specifically mean is highly processed food right yeah so how do you manage that and overcome that because that in and of itself is quite difficult because their palate has been cleansed almost or contaminated with these hyper palatable foods that are high in sugar, high in salt, high in fats. And when they start to then flick that and eat nutrient, what I call nutrient dense food, their perception is that it's bland, it's untasty. And how do you start to overcome that? Slowly. Right. We, we, we overcome it slowly. Um, I make sure people understand what's going on. Right. I, I tell them when you're used to being overstimulated, that you're not really used to what life is like in its real form. It's almost like mm. being in the matrix and, you know, t- was, <laughs> yeah. was it the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, if you eat a chocolate bar every day and mm-hmm. natural foods don't taste good to you anymore, and then you stop chocolate all of a sudden, that some people have to. But if you stop it all of a sudden, you're going to go through a period of six to eight weeks while your taste buds adjust and your yeah. nervous system upregulates to respond with pleasure, where it seems like life is intolerably boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it extends beyond food. You, you, start, you start to think that, well, there's really no pleasure in life. And yeah. because you don't realize how much of your libido was directed towards the overstimulation with the, with the chocolate bar. Right. So with most people, we do that slowly. Most people don't give it up altogether. Some people do. Right. Um, and then they start to look at their results and they realize they, most people come into this feeling like they have no power at all. Yeah. Like this is just never going to work. So I have to prove to them that they're in control. And then they feel a little more optimistic and they say, well, okay, I'm not binge eating. I'm not overeating, but my sk- the scale isn't moving. Mm. It's not going up anymore, but I'm really kind of stuck. And yeah. so I'll say, well, what's keeping the weight on? And they know from talking to me that it's probably something that they're eating that's, you know, concentrated and not nutrition. This and they need to replace yeah. it with more nutrient dense yeah. foods. And and we do it little by little. Right. You know, maybe they'll say, um, I'll never have more than one ounce of cheese again or something yeah. like that. Or yeah. Um, you know, and, yeah. they, and they they make the adjustments little by little and then they get results and they get excited about it. And yeah. Then they make a little more. And it, you know, for some people it's a, you know, full year process for other people it's a couple yeah. of months and yeah, yeah. so so it, so it is very much a process and this is something that i'm i'm a big advocate of of understanding that it is a process in anything that you do in life that you're going to make a change in right and and so with that though throughout this process it's not going to be a linear process is it it's very much going to be up and down so presumably when people come to you initially they're highly motivated and they want to make a change they realize they can't stay when that where they are however as humans you know we have this big bout of motivation um and that's great that gets us started but actually how do you deal with it when they go into a bit of a trough and it's like we're not making progress i don't like this it's too much of a change you know nothing's working how do you then deal with that is that a psychological side of things you have to deal with or well partially we're we're very um results oriented and we take a lot of 
you know, surveys and testing with our clients along the way. So partly we tell people up front, I say, look, if you will engage and do this, and about 70% of our clients will, yeah. um, those people get a 90% reduction in binge frequency in the first month. Wow. And, and, I, and I'll quantify it for them. And I say, you know, our average client is spending $400 a month on binge food. So you do the math and tell me what 90% reduction yeah. means with, with that. Our average client is spending half the week recovering from binges. So what does that mean to you? And we try to just kind of bring the benefits very clearly into the now. Um, people do drop off over time. So when, yeah. when you get to about six months where we're like a 60 to 70% reduction and about about half the people are still doing it. We're always working on making that better. And that, by the way, that's better than most weight loss programs. Yeah. Um, we're always, and we don't think of ourselves as a weight loss program, but we're right. always working at working on making that better. Mm. But showing those people those stats and then telling, showing them what the distinction is between the people who do well in the long term and don't. Um, and there's just a couple of things. There's a little bit of work people need to do. Um, the work to stop overeating is front loaded. It's like getting an airplane into the sky. Yeah. It burns an awful lot of fuel getting there, but then cruising to its destination, it doesn't really take that much fuel. Right. It's the same way for a couple of months, you got to work really hard at it and then you can start to cruise. So, yeah. you know, after a couple of months time, they have, um, they have found most of the squeals that bother them and they've disempowered them. Right. And we've come up with little mantras for most of them for them. So it's just a matter of kind of reviewing their mantras once a day, maybe reading yeah. them out loud, um, reviewing their food plan, which is, you know, the set of rules that they've come up with. Yeah. Um, looking over their big why to stay motivated with where they're going. And we actually found that um, the people who are most successful are usually listening to the podcast regularly. Right. Because um, we're... That sounds self-serving, but it's just something that yeah. we found. Um, so, you know, we have very specific activities that people can do, and we can show them that it's going to be progressively less work. We can also explain to them that it's more work to keep binging. We'll ask them, well, what are you going to do otherwise? If you don't like to do this work, what are you going yeah. to do otherwise? And they start to think, well, I mean, some people go try another program. Right. And, um, you know, we have reasons why we think ours is better, but that's, yeah. that's okay. We let them do that if they want to do that. Um, but most people say, no, it's just my pig wanted to go back to binging. And the pig thinks that there should be an easy path up the mountain. Yeah. Um, what if, what if there's a clear path up the mountain, but it's a little hard, you have to take step after step. And then there's a way to roll down the hill all the way, you know, into the, into the pit. And wh what if there is no easy path? Mm. What, 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 if, what if this is the easiest path you can find, but it's still a little bit hard, you know, do you still want to go to the top of the mountain or not? And most people do. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's super interesting. And I guess the support you give them obviously helps with, with those troughs. But sure. what, one, one of the topics that I did want to dig into today, Glenn, which I don't think we're going to have time for. So I think if, if you're in agreement, we, we, we can get you back on to discuss. Sure. And that is, that is the, the topic of big food and the whole psychology behind it and the scientists are involved to get us to kind of continually eat this highly ultra processed food because it's something which when I talk to people about it, they are shocked, 
but equally don't believe that is going on. They they seem to think that that it's a bit of a conspiracy theorist um, <laughs> kind of view, right? It's and, not. It's yeah. not. And and no, absolutely, and I don't believe it is, and that's why I really want to dig into this topic because I think it's something that we need to share, and I think it's something that the, the wider population and listeners of this podcast need to hear. And whether or not you do anything with that information is kind of irrelevant, right? But but I think it's definitely our duty to kind of share that information. Can so, I say a couple of things? Yeah, absolutely. Do I have time for that or no? Yeah, yeah, no, go for it. So. One thing you need to understand is that the people working in these companies are not necessarily evil. They, no. they, they don't say, how am I going to hurt these people and make money no. from it? That's not what they're saying. Um, they think of themselves as making fun food and everybody deserves to indulge once in a while. And they're, um, they're providing you with the opportunity to do that in a, in a really fun way. That, that's how they think of it. And, you know, people vote with their wallets and the consumer what the consumer seems to vote for is what I call plausible deniability. Yeah. Um, so the consumer would love a reason to eat potato chips and think that they're healthy. So if you put avocado oil into a potato chip and people think that that's healthier, then they've got plausible deniability. So yeah. New, new potato chips with avocado oil. Um, but th there are, there is such a science to doing this. They, you know, there's something called, I learned this from one of my clients, um, there's a motivation to find flavor variability okay. because we, we had to find a variety of micronutrients in, in nature. Yeah. And so when major food manufacturers make bags of chips um, or, or corn chips or something like that, they, it's not a unitary assembly line with the same formula going into the, into the bag. They have a multitude of slight variations in flavor on different assembly lines to kind of merge into one line right. and then, then go into the bag so that you keep wanting, I'm finding this new flavor, I'm finding this new flavor, right. eating and eating and eating. Um, there is a, there's a concept of bliss point. There's a certain amount of sugar that is blissful. And when you go beyond that point, it's a little disgusting. Yeah. And they do a lot of testing to find exactly where the bliss point is. The right. same thing for like herbs and spices and, there's only so much vanilla that people really want to taste and then they don't want to taste it anymore. It's yeah. only so much. And there are very precise measurements that go into and, and studies that go into um, figuring that all out. And then there are methods of testing your response to advertising, which indicate what's going to create maximal purchase interest. And yeah. it's an, it's a largely unconscious motivation. It, right. it has to do with the kind of person you want to think of yourself as. Yep. Um, it has to do with the kind of people you identify with. It has to do with your galvanic skin response. And, and it's so sophisticated and there's so much money in it that they just keep you know, hiring rocket scientists and pouring money in and pouring money in. That, um, yeah, I, Winston Churchill said that democracy was the worst kind of government except for all the others. But one of the downfalls of democracy is that it doesn't really regulate the free markets the way that they should be yeah. to protect the public's health. And your health is not necessarily in these companies' best interest. No. Your, your pleasure and enjoyment is in their best interest. So Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I totally agree with you in, in so much as the people that are responsible for this are not evil. They're, they're fulfilling a job and they are doing what is asked of them. And but and I think this is this is a whole other topic. This is where it comes back to us as individuals taking responsibility for our own health other than putting it in the hands of the food companies, the healthcare yes. companies and all the rest of it. Right. Amen, brother. Yeah. So, so that's where it comes back to that. But before I let you go, Glenn, I really want to ask for people listening to this that have identified and resonated with what we've been talking about in terms of overeating, binge eating, what would you say are the five things that people listening to this today could really take away to start implementing if they realize actually that's me? Okay. First of all, it's a lot simpler than you believe that it is. Okay. There's a lot of confusion out there. A lot, of, um, a lot of people in my field are confusing people. There's a lot of confusion in the addiction industry. It's a lot simpler than you think that it is. So yep. clear away the muck, start with a blank slate and say, if there were one simple thing I could do, one simple thing that I could and would do, it's not going to be too onerous, yep. um, but I'm going to get a big bang for the buck. It's really mm. about 80-20. So where would you start? Maybe I don't eat after eight o'clock at night. Right. Maybe I'll always start my day with healthy goodness. I will always you know, fill up with a green smoothie, whatever, something you, yeah. you can and would do that you know will make a difference. Maybe I walk around the block once before mm. I go to work, whatever it is. Um, come up with a name for your reptilian brain. Right. And this is a methodology. And by the way, I will tell you where you can listen to um, example sessions and you can see that I'm not just a weird ass doctor who's excuse me life respect <laughs> big inside of them but it's, yeah. it's a very compassionate life restoring hope giving process yeah um give this inner thing a name and define it as any any impulse to cross the line whatsoever mm -hmm. and what you're doing is separating your constructive self from your destructive self mm -hmm. you've got a set of thoughts that are destructive and we define that as those which suggests that you break your best laid thinking, right? Because yep. I'm assuming you're going to choose a rule that's good for you. And then you've got constructive thoughts, which supports you maintaining the rule. That's how you define this thing. So it's not an inner wounded yep. child or, okay. Then listen for that destructive self, mm -hmm. the pig, the food monster, whatever. listen for it to start talking and telling you to break the rule. When you make a rule, you're of two minds, so there's going to be a part of you that says you want to break it. Just accept that that's the truth. Cravings are inevitable. Those justification thoughts are yeah. inevitable. But overeating is not. So start listening for that. When you hear it, um, slow down. Take those breaths if you can. Ask the thing, tell me specifically, why should I eat this thing? Yeah. And then look for the lie and what it's saying. It usually wins by telling you a half-truth and a bigger lie. Mm -hmm. So there, there will be some truth to it, but it'll be a bigger lie. Um, say specifically what's wrong with it. And then ask yourself, how would staying with my rule make me a happier, better person? If you, if you just start practicing with that with one simple rule, you'll, you'll be amazed at how much progress you make. And um, you know, then you can watch our videos and read our books and it'll take you a little further. But that's, that's the best place to start. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So with regards to that, then, Glenn, how can people find out a little bit more about you? Where's what you know, what's your YouTube channel, social media, your book, and all the rest of it? It, it all starts at the website. If you go okay. to neverbingeagain.com, 
Okay. And you click the big red button. You can sign up for the reader bonuses and you'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Cool. We do have paperback and Audible, but there's a charge yeah. for those. But Kindle, Nook, and PDF are free. Um, I recorded a set of full-length coaching sessions. So you can mm -hmm. hear people going from feeling despairing and desperate to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic in just one session. Yeah. Even though we're talking about their inner pig. Yeah. And, and then I, I created a um, set of food plan starter templates. So these are sets of rules that would match most dietary philosophies. Yeah. So whether you're, you know, whether you're whole foods plant-based or you're ketogenic or you're, yeah. um, whatever you are, point counting, calorie counting, there's a set of rules that you can modify to work with yourself. But I recommend you start with one simple rule. Neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button and we'll get you started. Perfect. Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Like I said, I'd love for you to come back so we Absolutely. can delve into this topic of big food um, and share it with the audience. But yeah, thanks very much again. And um, I look forward to speaking to you soon. I look forward to talking to you too. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Fitter Healthier Dad podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe. And I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. All the links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes. And a full transcription is over at fitterhealthierdad.com. <laughs>